When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden Podcast. My name is Gavrielle Hawkowen. And I am cult expert Sadie Carpenter. Cult expert, the one and only Sadie Carpenter, cult expert and cult survivor. This is a big, long episode. Uh, today, we're talking about Bible translations. We're specifically talking about why the fundamentalists need to use the King James Version translation, like what the actual reason behind that is. Right. And as anyone who grew up Fundy is going to be aware, there is no way that we could cover this in a two-hour episode because a lot of us were subjected to 10 and 20-hour uh, discussions of this subject. So today we are sticking to the textual basis, the, the reasons that the IFB believe that other versions are invalid. We're going to have a follow-up episode where we get into the, the more fluffy, fun numerology ideas behind this. Oh, God. This part is, uh, it's like fortune telling, I swear. Yeah, so I'm just going to get right into it. Uh, the Leaving Eden podcast is the podcast about my BFF and co-host, uh, cult expert and cult survivor, Sadie Carpenter's life in and escape from uh, the Independent Fundamental Baptist cult, uh, Independent Fundamental Baptist Church. Uh, we talk about this cult. We talk about other cults. We talk about religion. We talk about fundamentalism. We talk about the real and present threat that cults and cult ideologies pose to society as a whole. And it is our goal to promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom of religion. So if you like our show, if you're a fan of our show, there's a numerous things that you can do. You can 
like, you can follow, you can subscribe to the show on wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, number one, that's the first thing you do. Number two, you can join our Patreon where there is an extended and uncensored version of most of our episodes. Uh, with a, a bit of extra content for you. Uh, and that goes up every week. It also goes up a day early. So if you can't wait until Monday to get our new episode, you can tune into the Patreon and get that on Sunday, which is cool. You can also join our Facebook group, which is where we have our main discussion about what goes on. But you can also post there if you just want to talk about religion in general or if you want to share your personal experiences uh, with fundamentalism or with religion or if you just want to like share some funny memes that you got, like some funny religion memes. That's that's also welcome there. You can do that there and it's fun. Sadie, is there anything else that I'm missing? Uh, No, I I think that's it. Yeah. Okay. Well, Ready I'm for just gonna... the, oh, let's do the Faith Promise Missions patrons and the I Gave It All patrons. Yeah. I just got to thank our, uh, our I Gave It All tier and Faith Promise Missions tier patrons. Um, I Gave It All tier patrons. Your names are... The same ones as always, Melissa Mosley and Kathleen Moncrief. Thank you guys so much for subscribing to the I Gave It All to your Patreon. Um, after I get my move done, after I, I make my move to Philadelphia, um, I'll throw together the uh, part two of the Extremely Sus Outtake Reel, which is going to be fun. I know I have said some things recently <clears throat> that are going to make it onto that reel. Oh, the hell? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and forgive me, um, my, uh, Faith Promise Missions to your patrons, if I go through your names more quickly than normally, because we are on a time crunch. We only have a certain amount of time to record this episode. I need to get through your names quickly. But your names are Alex Todd, Allison MacArthur, Anisha Patel, Brittany, Brooke Tully, Carissa, Crystal Patterson, Dear Ethan Hansen, The Musical, Eleanor Donahue, Elizabeth DeWorth, Emery Fairlosser, Hannah Ross, Hope Norum, Horton Here's a Shane. That one's really funny. I like that one. I'm just here to send Sadie True Crime Podcast Suggestions, a.k.a. Meg, Jen Kaharski, Jessica Tambo, Jonna, Jonathan Miller, Kat Hedberg, Kay Terwee, Kristen Marie, Lauren Vanderwall, Linda Morgan, Lindsay Goss, Lorena Watson, MC Crud Trap, hashtag the boy who cried sauce, aka Justin Bowman, Michaela Upright, aka Morgan's actual BFF, Madeline Antrim, Madeline Cusick, Marlena Stuve, Mary Williams, Mary Martin, Megan Arendt, Mike Smith, Miranda Day, Rachel Bernadowitz, Rebecca Hoyt, Rob the Methodist, Sarah Reese, Stephanie Johnson, Susie, Tara McNamara, The Lady Rabbi, Tiffany Enderby, Walnut, Son of Walnut, and as always, Wes the Cowboy. Thank you so much to all of our Faith Promise missions, and I gave it all to your patrons. You guys are the best. And to all of our patrons who keep our show up and running, we really appreciate you. Yes, 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 yes. Um, and now, without further ado, let's get into this episode. We're talking about Bible translations. Um, and- right. <laughs> Yeah. So Sadie, I know like, so I know this comes up a lot, but this is something, I guess this is kind of like a touchstone for 
leaving Eden podcast lore almost. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. But I want to talk about the time that I met your dad, uh, because this was like a a long conversation that we had when I got to meet him. And we talked about many, many, many different things. And that's been uh, but but one one thing he said specifically stuck with me. What's that? So we were talking about what it was like for him leaving the IFB. And he said, uh, and this is sort of to paraphrase to me, that he said that for, for some women, for like a lot of women, the moment that they feel like they're out is the first time that they leave the house wearing pants rather than a skirt. Um, for some people, they feel like they're out the first time they drink alcohol. But for him, he said that he felt like the moment when he was finally out of the IFB was the first time he got behind the pulpit in front of a congregation and opened up a Bible that was not a King James Bible. And this really stuck with me. It stuck out to me as something that I wanted to talk about again because uh, uh, when we were talking about uh, King James only ism. So did he tell you in that conversation chronologically when this happened? He might have mentioned it, but I don't remember. It would have been like maybe a year before you met him, if that. It would have been extremely recent at the time you met him. So that would have been in like, uh, we met in 21. So that would have been in like 2020. Yeah, I don't remember the exact date, but I know that it was very recent. And the Scop scandal was in 2012. Right. That's like eight years between mm-hmm. Scop scandal and not using a King James Bible. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, it it takes a long time. And I feel like the experience of deconstructing is so different from someone who grew up IFB and someone who joined as an adult. Because when I was leaving, I was leaving everything I'd ever known. And when he was leaving, he was rejoining a world that he voluntarily left 30 years previous. And it's not to say one is harder than the other, but I wanted to point out that these are very different experiences. In fact, he had asked me not to mention on the podcast that he even read other versions other than the KJV, much less preached from them. Um, Wow. Yeah, I feel like now that he's no longer here, that's probably okay. And if not, he can haunt me about it. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. It's don't at me. It's not don't at me. It's don't haunt me. Um, No, I do want him to haunt me. I would love that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I'm sure he has some perspective on it now. Um, it's but so, so that's not a problem that we need to worry about it. Uh, I mean, what's going to happen is the Hiles Anderson alumni office going to call and ask for, for their funeral flowers back? <laughs> <laughs> they might. Oh, man, that's them, though. No, what, like when I met him, the impression that I got was that after getting out of the IFB, he seemed to me like the kind of man that would own copies of of every Bible translation and know their histories and why they were made and the differences between all of them. Yeah, he did. Uh, Actually, when we were still in the IFB, he owned probably, if I had to guess, 40 different Bible translations. He, Hmm. He would use them as examples in church when he would preach about why we should be King James only. Really? Yeah. Ah, Okay. So, okay. It sort of sounds like that Simpsons episode you know when they're playing bombardment? Yeah. Um, when when Homer and Marge get taken away, or, or the kids get taken away from Homer and Marge by Child Protective Services, and they go to the Flanders and they're playing bombardment, and uh, and and Rod and Todd are picking which Bible translation to use. Yeah, exactly like that. Except for at the time, we all believed there was only one valid translation. 
So he had all those other translations to support the theory that King James was the only valid translation. What I would have liked to do with today's episode is take you through all of the reasons that the IFB are King James only. That's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think I have been able to distill one of the main reasons down enough to get it into one episode. <laughs> it's really complicated, but we're going to do our best. Also, listeners, please don't at me if I miss something or mispronounce something. It's been a really long time. No, I, I, I do remember two years ago when we were first listening to, our, when we were first doing our first family of fundamentalism uh, uh, series, you told me, basically, you gave me a brief version of inspiration versus uh, preservation. Mm -hmm. And that was fascinating. But you always said that there was more to the story than that. And um that the, like those are but those are the basics for what we needed to know specifically knowing the story of what happened with Jack Scop. Right. So we started making our notes for this episode and you were like what are you going to talk about isn't this just inspiration versus preservation? Yeah. <laughs> and I just had to laugh because that's maybe maybe like 25% of it. So that being said, I do want to give my my TW here before we go any further. So in general, we talk about a lot of potentially triggering topics on this show, including but not limited to suicide and mental health, racism, misogyny, PTSD, PTSD symptoms, child abuse, mental, physical, and sexual abuse, and spiritual abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we'll mention at least a few of these topics, but we try really hard to avoid graphic detail unless it's relevant to the story that we're telling on that day. We do our best to give an audience a heads up before we go into detail on any of those topics. In this episode, we're talking about King James onlyism, and I am going to pull out all of the reasons that we all heard in all of the sermons. I'm also going to quote or read a lot of King James scripture. I am going to do my best to just give you a tiny heads up before each verse that I quote or read. I really apologize if one just comes to mind and I forget to tell you first. I really am going to do my best. Uh, additional trigger warning, I'm going to use terms like original manuscript and Texas, Textus Receptus absolutely to death in this episode. Uh, if that kind of thing are talking about Hort and Westcott, it, I don't know if it'll trigger anyone else. It got me a little bit. So there we have it. All right. Thank you for that. Thank you for that, TW. So I hope that I've illustrated on this podcast that fundamentalism, specifically American evangelical fundamentalism, is more than a set of rules and regulations. The rules and regulations are certainly a big part of fundamentalist life, but I really like to frame it as a complete lifestyle system that informs every part of a person's life. It tells you how to behave, but that's just the start. You're also expected to incorporate this lifestyle system into what they call your thought life. Thought life sounds a lot like thought control. Absolutely. It's pretty much what it says on the label with that one. I've mentioned before that the IFB wants members to implement sort of a mental filter over every thought and run it through not only scripture, but King James scripture and not only King James, but their specific IFB interpretation of it. This comes from a Bible verse, actually. So TW, I'm starting with this. I'm starting with the scripture already, but it's 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness. So when it says all scripture, does that mean that you are required to follow every command in the Bible? The specific interpretation of this verse is that every verse and every word of scripture is meant for us and meant to be implied 
meant to be applied and that every word has value. We're going to get to that. It's not necessarily every commandment is for you, but every commandment could potentially be for you at a certain point in your life. So this mental filter is accomplished a few different ways. One way leans into both thought control and emotion control. Members are taught thought-stopping cliches and methods for controlling and redirecting emotion into approved thoughts and emotions. But one major part of this mental filter is memorizing a lot of scripture verses and making the quotations of scripture a part of your own mental landscape. So it would be like something that we talked about, like say you were too cold and you you wouldn't want to complain about that because complaining is a spirit of complaint, which is a spirit of negativity, and the spirit of negativity is not of God. Right. So you're too cold. You don't want to complain. So instead of complaining, you quietly quote to yourself, trigger warning for scripture, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands, serve the Lord with gladness, come before his presence with singing. And then you follow that up with a New Testament verse and everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And then by the time you've quoted all that, you've remembered, I'm not supposed to complain. I'm not supposed to have a negative spirit. So I'm just going to rejoice in the cold and be happy. So I guess that the thing I'm having difficulty with is, so so it's not that every verse is 100% applicable to every person 100% of the time. You know, <clears throat> I was going to try to explain that. I think it will make more sense after I explain the King James only doctrine. I know this probably sounds weird, but I think if we get into the reasons for King James only, it will click at the end. So what I want to point out before we get into these reasons is the fact that the whole house of cards of Christian fundamentalist cults as a whole is built on biblical literalism. Now, I do not want to be taken out of context here. I am not saying that every person who believes in biblical literalism is a cult member. I am saying that this particular type of cult depends on it. The IFP in particular has its entire house of cards built on biblical literalism and King James onlyism. All of the rules, the behavior control, the information control, the thought control, and the emotion control are completely dependent on this doctrine. So they tend to put a lot of time and effort into propping up this belief. And they tend to be really emotionally attached to this belief because their entire lifestyle, their mental filter, the way they see the world, the way they behave, and everything they believe about the world depend on this one thing. So it makes sense that if you are saying every word of this book is 100% true and literal, you would have to agree on what the words are. Like if you're fighting over translations that can get into fighting over what the words are. And if every word is literal, you're fighting over what the commandments are then. And then you get into fighting over what the commandments are. Exactly. And in a lot of verses, the difference in wording between the King James and a more modern translation wouldn't make a difference in theology, but there are plenty of verses where it would. If every word has the potential to spawn a complete change in behavior or thought. And if you're taking it that word by word literally, a mistranslation or a difference in interpretation is just not going to work for you. Every single word of the text has to somehow have made it to borrow an old-fashioned phrase from God's mouth to your ears or your eyeballs. And it has to be because it is the perfect word of God. It has to be a correct translation, a perfect translation. 
Now, the reason that they believe that there has to be a perfect translation as if it were spoken in English from the mouth of God is something we're going to talk about later. I promise I will get to that. So let's jump into the reasons for King James onlyism. I got to dig deep into the funding memory bank for this one. Oh, man. To talk about this, we have to talk about where the Bible originally came from. Not, the, oh, well, Moses wrote it or Paul wrote it or whatever. But how did the Bible get from the pen of whoever wrote it to me? So the parchments that eventually through copying and being passed down in translation became the Bible were written primarily in three languages in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. So specifically what Christians call the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. There are a few bits that are written in Aramaic. I believe in the book of Daniel, there are there are chapters that are in Hebrew and some that are in Aramaic. And the New Testament was written mostly in Greek with a little bit of Aramaic, depending on what the author of that specific text spoke. Further complicating this, we don't know what the original language for every book of the New Testament was. The events of the New Testament took place in a multilingual society. So Jesus probably, if we're, th if we're thinking of Jesus as an in-universe character, <laughs> even like the fundy Jesus, uh, would have spoken Hebrew and Aramaic fluently, and at least some Greek. So the most common belief is that John and Luke and most other New Testament writers wrote in Greek, but it's certainly possible that New Testament writers other than Mark wrote their text in Hebrew or Aramaic or a mix of the two languages, and then they were shortly thereafter translated into Greek, like when, in the first 30 to 50 years of their existence. So obviously, we don't have the original texts anymore for any scripture. We don't have the tablets that Moses wrote the Ten Commandments on. We don't have the parchments that Moses or Joshua wrote on about their travels in the wilderness or any of that. We don't have sheet music written by King David. We don't have the books of Daniel and his prophecies. We don't have John's diary of following Jesus around the country. During his ministry, we don't have an original letter from Paul to the Philippians. We don't have the manuscripts from John on the Isle of Patmos. Those things just, they have been lost to time. They do not exist anymore. So how do we know that they got written down correctly? Ding, ding, ding. That's your first big question that the fundies have to answer. And anybody who believes in any kind of literal translation of the Bible has to answer. Right. So um, I'm remembering back in the book of Deuteronomy, for instance, Moses gives essentially he gives three final speeches uh, to the Israelites before they can enter the promised land. So it would make sense that M Moses is out here. He's given this big speech. It's huge. It's important. It's a big occasion. And somebody would have written it down. So, so it makes sense that that would have been written down contemporary contemporaneously. Is, is that, I don't know. It, it would have been written down at the time that it was, that it was given. Um, but if take a different like Judges, right? Book of Judges. This is a book. This takes place over decades, so it wouldn't make sense for somebody to write all that down while it was happening. Or if they did, it would have had to have been like all of these stories, which were written or which were told in detail, basically just kind of like abridged and yada 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 over some of the details to make it fit into a history that was cohesive and made sense and, and could be compiled later as one of these books. Right. So from the King James only perspective, 
and from a biblical literalist perspective in general. For the Old Testament, Jewish scribes and scholars kept a written history of events. So, it, you know, it could have been whoever was the royal scholar for King Saul or King David or King Solomon who was writing down the events of like of like first and second Samuel or first and second Kings. And whoever the royal scribes were, were writing the events of Judges and these historical books, whoever the royal scribes were was probably who was writing that down. The the biblical literalist view, though, is that whoever was writing them was divinely inspired by God. The literal belief is that God spoke each word into their ears and guided them down to the exact word choice. So potentially in this in this belief system, many people contributed to the book of Judges. Many different scribes and scholars contributed. And if that's the case, then God spoke into each one of their ears and told them exactly what words to contribute each person. Or possibly one person sat down and compiled the writings of many other people who wrote down the history of the book of Judges over decades. And God spoke into that person's ear and told them exactly how to compile it and what words to use. Does that make sense? Yes. But I have another question. Okay. So if God spoke to you and told you what to write down, would that not make you a prophet? Sort of, but also no. The term prophet, it's a different mm-hmm. meaning for the IFB. I don't think we have time to get into it today. Uh, but the 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 idea is that once these parts of the Bible made it onto paper for the first time, whenever that was, so once the book of Judges made it in full onto, and I say paper, I know it was probably parchment or something else, animal skins, um, but once it made it into written form for the first time, whenever that was, it became divinely inspired scripture. And nothing that deviates from that very first time that the very first guy wrote down Moses' speeches or the book of Judges or anything else that is in the Bible, anything that deviates from that is not the word of God. And we must have at least one translation that is the perfect word of God that faithfully holds to those original, the, the original very first time it was ever written down. That's inspiration. The belief of preservation starts with as these written texts, so using the book of Judges, as soon as it was completely written down, it became divinely inspired word of God and could never change. And then scholars, when a book, when a copy of the book of Judges was was worn out, scholars would go through and copy it precisely word for word to make a new copy. This is a nod to how Torah scrolls are actually made. It's Judaism appropriating again, but at least they're doing it mostly right for once. So hmm. the IFB belief, the King James Version only belief, is that they were preserved. So the IFB belief, the King James only belief, is that they were preserved. Plain and simple. It's what I would call magical thinking, unfortunately. The IFB belief is that the words that Moses spoke, whether he wrote them down or whether someone else wrote them down, the writers of the book of Judges or writer, whoever it was, once it was written down, they were copied not just carefully, but perfectly each time through thousands of years. So when we talk about catastrophic events like the destruction of Solomon's temple during the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem in approximately 587 BC, which led to the Babylonian captivity written about in the book of Daniel. These copied and preserved and carefully copied texts 
had proliferated so that some still remained, even though Jerusalem was destroyed. So Daniel, as a young man, would have had access to these texts, the sayings of Moses and the book of Judges. And then over 500 years later, when we read the story of Jesus reading scripture in the temple in Jerusalem, in the second temple, Jesus would have also had access to a copy of these perfectly accurately transcribed and impeccably preserved texts. Okay, so these 100% accurately transcribed texts, they would have been available to anybody who was growing up in Judea in the first century, including Jesus. Yes, exactly. And it would have um, probably been something that someone would have had to go to the temple to read. Remember this. uh, This is going to come back later. Uh, We're going to talk about this this text itself. Uh, Right. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. So... Mm. So inspiration is when God verbally gives scripture to whoever the first person was to write it down. Whoever was the first person to get it on paper, parchment, clay, sheepskin, whatever, God personally, audibly, in their ear, told them exactly what words to use. That is inspiration. And all biblical literalists believe in in inspiration. Preservation refers first to this process, which they do get mostly right about the Jewish traditions around making new copies of the Torah, of copying scripture exactly word for word. If the scribe makes a mistake, they have to destroy the scroll. All of that, which again, they mostly get right, uh, is the process of preservation. Preservation is a word that they also use for something else that is way wilder, which we will get to shortly. I find this extremely interesting. When we talked about Bob Jones University, we talked about the fundamentals of the Christian faith. Some ideas that were that these influential pastors and scholars felt that every Christian should be able to agree on. What so was King James only ism an idea that was included in this essay series? I haven't read them all, so I'm not sure. I did go back and read through the article titles. Uh, I did not see King James only. What they did mention was a lot of the concepts that we're talking about today, such as, oh, you know, this particular Greek translation is corrupt or inspiration or preservation. Those concepts were brought up. And the King James Bible would have been like the, I don't want to, was it like the only translation that would have been available in English at the time that the fundamentals were written? You know, I'm not sure because that was so close to the time when the first modern English translations were coming out. Okay. And I'd have to look at the exact dates to know. We talked about the source text for the Old Testament and how the King James only people believed that they were inspired in the first place and then preserved throughout the time between Moses and Jesus. We also talked about the origins of the source text for the New Testament. These source texts are often referred to as the original manuscripts And I do sincerely apologize for how many times I'm about to say original manuscripts in this episode. The IFB believe that in the roughly 300 years after Jesus, many people became Christians. So there was demand not only for the accounts of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but also for the writings of other apostles, such as Peter, Philip, and James, for the letters that the apostle Paul sent to the early churches. There were churches growing all over the place, from Ethiopia to India to Syria to modern-day Turkey, which is where Ephesus is. I'm not really sure how historically accurate this part of the IFB view is, but the IFB belief and the mainstream Christian belief, many Christians believe, is that the new believers 
believers were so desperate, so hungry for information about this new religion that had captured their hearts that they would take anything they could get as far as scripture. So speaking about the first 60 to 100 years after the death of Jesus, and if you're a Christian, the resurrection and assumption to heaven of Jesus, no early church had a full copy of the scriptures. So there might be five churches that shared five of Paul's letters. So it would be, okay, well, you can have Galatians this week and we'll have Corinthians this week. And then next week we'll switch and we'll have Galatians. You'll have, you know what I mean? They were sharing. It's communism. (laughs) Well, the the early Christians were extremely communist. (laughs) Don't tell the IFB. Uh, (laughs) but so so basically nobody had a complete copy of all of what we would now call scripture they shared as best as they could they made copies of whatever they could get their hands on old testament scripture or gospels or paul's letters and they copied them in the so if it was something that was written in greek they probably copied it in Greek, because that was the common language in that entire part of the world at the time. But they also may have translated it into a local language. For example, when these scriptures traveled to Ethiopia, um, they may have made a copy in Greek and then also made a copy in a local language so that those who couldn't understand Greek could still understand the scripture. Where we get into KJVO here is that KJVO people believe that as these texts were being proliferated against across half of the world and copied into many different languages, God was still preserving the scripture. So there were copies which God was still supernaturally making sure that the translators got it right. And not for every translation, because sometimes people would make a new translation and they would alter things in it for their own their own interests or what they wanted it to say or what they wanted people to think it said. So God was not helping those people get it right, but the people who were doing it with pure hearts and, and truly trying to get an accurate translation God was guiding them to make sure that since the letters came out of Paul's ink pen onto a page, there was always a perfect and accurate copy somewhere in the world. Question. So so does KJVOism elevate those translations, the the translations into other languages? Is there a version of them that is at the same level as as? the KJV version is in English. Like, is there a KJV approved version of the Bible translated into Amharic or Arabic or like Persian? So I'm going to have to skip ahead of myself a little bit to answer this question. It's going to blow your mind. IFB people believe that the King James is a valid source text for future translations into new languages because they believe that the King James Version is literally God's word in English and it is exactly as good and accurate as if you were holding Paul's original letter or Moses's original Ten Commandments tablets in your hands. Because for reasons that I will explain to you coming up. They believe that the King James is the absolute perfect word of God as he spoke it, as if he had spoken it in English. And these are the exact words that God would have used if he had spoken the original Holy Bible into English to the prophets and the apostles. So so like in the year like 300, if I were some guy in Persia, I could get a hold of an perfect version of it. But that perfect version 
So would that perfect version, if you translated it into English today, would it say the exact same thing that the KJV version says now? So that's the theory. But let's say that an IFB missionary. Yes, that's the theory. But let's say that an IFB missionary goes as a missionary to a country where there is not a Bible version that the IFB believes is accurate. They will use the King James version as a source text to trans to make a new translation in that language. So if there isn't a trans, but I'm sure that there's a KJV translation these days into literally every language that exists on Earth because somebody's no. taking the time to really. No, no, there are like there are a lot of tribal languages because you know the IFB have a long history of going to bother like indigenous and tri- tribal people who do not want to be bothered. Yes. Yeah, so there are plenty of languages that don't have a King James translation. Huh. But you'd think that they would be trying to make that like there would be some ministry out there that was like Oh, there are. Yeah. Our job is to now do only translations into just the most rarest of all languages that so that we can make sure that everybody Yeah, there there are there are ministries like that. They think they are the coolest people. People who have anything to do with like Bible ministries think they are the Indiana Jones of the IFB world. Um, well, you know, we've talked about Bible smugglers on this show before. Right. Tim and Jim. Well, right. But there are like real people who do that. So Tim and Jim were smuggling the, the, the Bible, Bible on, on the microfilm micro- into Russia, right? No, they were going to uh, communist Romania. So right. they would have been, uh, uh, it would have been in Romanian that they were, uh, 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 they had a Bible translation into Romanian that was, which is weird because the... Romanian, I feel like it would be easier to translate just like the Latin into right. Romanian than yeah, to so, go. <clears throat> so I'm about to explain to you why you can't use the Latin translation. Okay. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Oh, man. Okay. So so here, here's the problem. They The IFB believes that this magic trick of being exactly as if God had spoken it into English works Wait, With hold on. The, but Romania is right near Greece. It's I not know. far from Greece. I know. You can't use all of the Greek translations either. I'm about to explain this to you. So you can't go Greek to Romania. You got to go Greek to <laughs> English to Romanian. I'm going to explain to you why. The IFB believes that this preservation magic trick that makes it as if God spoke the Bible into English for the King James Version only works on the King James Version, and there are a couple of reasons that it only works the on the King James Version. The first reason that it only works on the King James Version is because of the origin of the texts used to translate the King James Version. So we're going to talk about as the textual... Textual basis is a word that you might hear get thrown around for this. So as these scripture texts proliferated over the world, they they separated out regionally into what they call textual families with very, very minor differences between these textual families. So when Christianity spread among the Romans under Constantine's rule, these texts were gathered together and translated into Latin. In 382 AD, Pope Damasus I commissioned St. Jerome to make an authoritative Latin translation. This is what Flanders is referencing in the Simpsons clip you mentioned earlier, by the way. St. Jerome was very dedicated to creating the most accurate translation in Latin that he could. St. Jerome used only one source for his Latin Old Testament translation. Only a few centuries previously, the pharaoh Ptolemy II had commissioned the Old Testament to be translated into Koine Greek. Actually, before the birth of Christ, 
which was the common spoken Greek at the time, he wanted, <clears throat> the Pharaoh wanted a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament to put in the Library of Alexandria because he wanted a copy of like every important work in the world. In the Christian tradition, Ptolemy had 70 elders. He put them in 70 different rooms and he told them each to translate the Old Testament into Koine Greek and miraculously, they all came up with identical translations. So this translation was that all 70 elders came up with identically was called the Septuagint. Jerome used this translation, the Septuagint, as a guide, but he translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Latin. So he started with the Hebrew, but he used the Greek of the Septuagint as a guide because he spoke Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. So Jerome had a tougher time with translating the New Testament into Latin because there were so many different manuscripts out there. Despite living only about 400 years after the events of the New Testament, he did not have access to any original manuscripts. He could not use the original writings of Matthew, Mark, or Paul. He did have a translation called the Vetus Latina, which was a translation made by early Christians for those in their communities who did not understand Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic. So the Vetus Latina is one of is the earliest Latin translation of the New Testament books. Jerome edited the Vetus Latina and combined it with his translation of the Old Testament to produce what is now known as the Latin Vulgate. And the Latin Vulgate is the one that the Catholic Church uses. Right. So the Latin Vulgate, uh, Vulgate sh shares a root with vulgar, which means common. It was intended to be the Bible in the language that the greatest percentage of people spoke. It's still the official Latin translation of the Catholic Church, although English translations have been, have been now made. So now we're moving geographically over to Europe, where we're going to park for a minute. As centuries passed, fewer people in Europe where the, the Catholic Church was dominant spoke Latin. If you remember our Trail of Blood episode, the IFB believes that the Catholics weren't real Christians, and the real Christians were being persecuted by the Catholics, and were hiding out in the mountains in Switzerland and Italy and such. So, the average person in Germany or England in the 1300s, 1400s, 1500s didn't speak Latin, and therefore they couldn't read the Latin Vulgate for themselves. Something like 90% of Catholic clergy did speak and read Latin, and Catholic church services were performed in Latin. So if we focus on England for a minute, Catholicism was dominant, but it was not the only form of religious practice. It wasn't mandated by the government for a couple more hundred years. The church had a very close relationship with the ruling class in England, but if some dude who was a serf in England in 1300 went to church, the service would be completely in a language that he didn't understand. So he would be saying prayers, so he wouldn't be able to read the scripture. And when he would pray that our father, he would say a prayer that he learned by sound. So do you remember how Nat King Cole didn't actually speak like French, German, or Spanish, but he sang songs in multiple different languages? Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Because okay. he was very talented at picking up language by sound, even if he didn't completely speak that language. This is the same concept. This is how people would be praying if they didn't speak Latin. So he's saying that our father, Pater Noster, qui est in celis, sanctificator, nomen tuum, 
which is our father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But he has no clue like what that means unless someone has translated it into English for him. This is a major issue for the IFB because in their opinion, this is the Catholic Church coming between a person and God. The IFB believe, which is not a crazy take, that a person's ability to read the Bible in their own language is hugely important. <laughs> not the worst take they have. What they're missing maybe when they make that statement is that surf guy in England probably couldn't read or write in any language. Yeah. So it was kind of irrelevant. So it wouldn't matter what language the Bible was in, because if you were a surf, you wouldn't be able to read it anyway. Right. But in IFB, in IFB view, it's a travesty that any person can't get and read a copy of the Bible in their language because they see this as the Catholic Church gatekeeping the Bible. I mean, they kind of have a point there, man. They They do. Right. They're missing the, like... The educational half, but the half that they do have isn't the worst. So put a pen in England. We're going to zoom back out to Europe. Remember how I said the IFB believed that the real Christians were hiding out in the mountains in Switzerland? Well, this is where we get to meet Zwingli, Calvin, and Wycliffe, which is really fun. And I'm going to breeze through this. So during the Middle Ages leading up to the Reformation, other scholars were seeking to do an update of what St. Jerome did almost a millennium previous translate the Bible from Greek into either Latin or into their own language. The Catholic Church was not a fan of this because they were being pretty gatekeepy about the whole thing. So in 382 AD, Pope Damasus I was like, heck yes, Jerome, we need that Bible in Latin because everybody who can read can read Latin. But a thousand years later, most people still couldn't read, but those who could didn't necessarily read Latin. It wasn't the written language of the common people anymore. But by that time, a thousand years after St. Jerome, the church was actually like, you know what? You know what? No, we like being the only ones who can read the Bible because we can tell people what it says and they can't go like fact checking us. So actually, don't translate the Bible into the language of the common people. It should only be in Latin because Latin is a holy language. So if you if you translate it <clears throat> into a language other than Latin, you're going to defile the Bible. So don't do that. So yeah, the church has done a very hypocritical 180 here in the Middle Ages. So John Wycliffe in the late 1300s was a Catholic priest and early reformer which is a nice way to say that he really pissed off the Catholic Church. His main issue with the Catholic Church was actually the doctrine of transubstantiation and the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. But his kind of tertiary issue was that he believed that the Bible should be translated into English from the Latin Vulgate, and he was working on a translation. And the church was like, no, don't do that. He was like, but I think I should. So the scripture that Wycliffe is working with started with the <clears throat> original manuscripts. He was using the Septuagint, that got translated at Alexandria from Hebrew to Greek. And he was also using the Latin Vulgate, which Jerome had translated from the Septuagint in Greek, Koine Greek to Latin. Wycliffe was taking the Latin Vulgate and translating it from Latin to English. So the New Testament texts um, that Wycliffe used were completely from the Latin Vulgate, which, as you may remember, were from the Vetus Latina. So according to the IFB, the Latin Vulgate is illegitimate. Right. So it turns out that the IFB reject the Septuagint because it was done in Alexandria and they believe that the Hebrew texts that they had in Alexandria were corrupted and wrong and not divinely inspired. So anything that uses the Septuagint, they do not use. Wait, so they don't like the 70 translators in 70 rooms all saying the same thing? Plot twist. What? what? <laughs> I'm sorry, I had to 
I'm sorry, but no, they don't accept anything that is that is related to the Septuagint because they don't accept the Septuagint. That, but that seems like that's right up there. Like that is seventy people all saying the same thing, and they're <laughs> all in different rooms. That sounds a whole lot like it would fit. Like if they were trying to say, "Oh, verbal inspiration," that's a real doctrine. I know. But they don't accept the Septuagint because they believe that the starting text in Hebrew that they started with were bad. So I'm going to tell you what they do accept coming up here. Yeah. It's not Wycliffe, though. <laughs> because they Wycliffe, like Wycliffe. No, they really like him. They really like Wycliffe because he pissed off the Catholic Church. But because his translation started with the Latin Vulgate, which started with the Septuagint, they can't use his Bible. So fun fact, Wycliffe died in conflict with the church and he was given a Catholic burial at the time, but then he was excommunicated after his death and his body was dug up and burned and thrown in a river. And this is why the IFB really like him. Wow. That's yeah. a, 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 IFB children's stories. So I'm not kidding. So it's, but it, it, is, is it not seen as heresy to mistranslate the Bible? Like if, if he were translating the Bible and, and we're translating a widely used version, why would God not verbally inspire him to translate it correctly? Why would God wait another 250 years uh, for King James to show up and, and have his own translation done? So why God waited another 250 years is going to have to be answer- answered when we do the numerology follow-up session- oh, follow-up God. episode. This is some fortune telly. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> but it's not that Wycliffe is seen as a heretic. It's just that he wasn't divinely inspired. The IFB view <clears throat> of Wycliffe is like, he had the right idea. He did his best. And it's not his fault that he was stuck with the wrong source material. So, it, so it's... <laughs> God just didn't inspire his text because God couldn't possibly inspire a translation that started from the wrong texts, but they're willing to give Wycliffe a pass and still like stand him because he made the Pope so mad and they really hate the Pope. I don't know about you. Th- this whole thing gives me real strong, like, you know, Book of Mormon with the plates. Yeah. With the translating off the different plates. Like, it it just doesn't make sense to me. With the hat. Yeah, with the hat. Right. And you can't see them, and you got to use the plate of uh, uh, this one because you told somebody about it. Yeah, so this doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me that every version of this book that was copied and transcribed perfectly, it, it was perfectly protected up to the year like 367 or whatever, and then suddenly it's now wrongly translated. Yeah, just not every version that was copied and transcribed was correct. It was just some versions that God divinely inspired and Wycliffe just had the wrong ones. So how does the IFB know that theirs are translated from the right ones? Let me see if I can explain this a different way. So all of these copies of copies of copies of both Old and New Testament scriptures got passed around half the world in multiple different languages. Ptolemy got 70 elders together to basically collate all of the Old Testament texts and translate them into Greek, and that's the Septuagint. Then Jerome, of course, used the Septuagint and the Vetus Latina to make Jerome's Latin Vulgate. The problem is that all of those texts are corrupted. The IFB believe that they're corrupted because of minor wording differences that contradict IFB beliefs. Hmm. Okay. 
So the IFB believe that nothing we've talked about before this point is the real Bible. They believe that the real Bible was in the Antiochian texts. So while all of this was going on in <clears throat> in Egypt and in Rome and in Bethlehem and in all these other places in Germany, the real Bible was preserved in Antioch, which is a city in Syria that is heavily mentioned in the New Testament. So is this the so Antioch is the one that the King James is translated from? Okay, so what language is that written in? Uh, the Antiochian text is written in. Let me see if I can find out. I can't tell if it's Greek or Old Latin. I'm looking at a very handy chart from a pro King James version website, but it does not tell me what the original Antiochian text was supposedly written in. Okay. Huh. Okay. Hmm. I'm going to put this chart on our Instagram. You're going to love it. So Wycliffe made the first English translation of the Bible in the 1300s. And then along comes this dude named Erasmus in the 1500s. So Erasmus uh, came along a little over 100 years after Wycliffe. He was yet another Catholic guy who wasn't completely with the program of the Catholic Church. He wanted to translate a new Greek New Testament, but he didn't want to do what Jerome did and lean on the Septuagint or the Vetus Latina or these original these other source texts that other people had used. He felt like there was something more accurate out there. And according to IFB tradition, he was guided by God to find the actual Greek and Hebrew manuscripts that were the ones, not the exact ones that the apostles wrote, but the ones that were divinely preserved and perfectly copied from the ones that the apostles wrote. This is probably, I feel like we're about to have to go to break. So I should probably make a note about why the IFB believe there has to be a perfect translation. Yeah. Yeah, that, that should be covered before we leave for break. This is confusing. To, that That's the only thing that's confusing to me. Okay. That. <clears throat> so... Uh, T.W. again, I'm going to read several scriptures. Uh, Isaiah 48 says, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So God's word will stand forever, which they interpret to mean there will always be God's word on earth. Psalm, 20, Psalm 12, verse 6 and 7 says, The words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. So the tra the interpretation there is there was God's word was on earth at the time of King David, and it will always be on earth. Matthew 5.18 says, this is words of Jesus, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. So Jesus, um, <clears throat> the interpretation there is that Jesus is saying that there will always be a Bible. There will always be God's word on earth. So the IFB believe that there's a perfect translation because the Bible verses that they read and their translation says that the word of God will stand forever and be preserved on the earth. Huh. So yes, the logic is a perfect circle. The IFB logic, and I'm, I'm not making fun. This is literally what they preach. The Bible is true and perfect because the Bible says it is true and perfect. I mean, you can't fault it, can you? That it it, it makes sense in universe. Yeah, it, it's the exact same logic 
by which they will give themselves honorary doctorates from their own Bible colleges that don't have a doctoral program and then go around calling themselves doctor. Or they'll go to a Patriot Bible University and pay $2,000 like Kent Hovind did. King James Bible, that's based on the one from Erasmus. Yes. So now we have a non-corrupted Greek New Testament. It's not in English yet. Because Wycliffe's, which wasn't English, was from a corrupted text. So Erasmus. Erasmus, the texts that he collected, which were, some of them were those old Antiochian texts. Uh, Some of them were old Latin texts. Uh, The Waldensians, which were those people who hid in the mountains that we talked about in the um, Trail of Blood episode. From uh, those guys... And then like other traditional Christian texts that were not affiliated with the Catholic Church, that's the big thing, were the texts that Erasmus brought together and worked from to create the Greek New Testament. Those texts became known as the Textus Receptus, which is Latin for the received texts. So <laughs> what to sum all this up, Erasmus was the first guy to bring together all of these texts that were never affiliated with the Catholic Church. Okay. So like a large mm-hmm. amount of the of the IFB King James onlyism is just is just based on like we don't like Catholics. But Erasmus brings all of these together. They're called the Textus Receptus received text because they are the text that many many non-Catholic Christians are in agreement on. And of course, the story goes on that when King James translators came along about 100 years later, they used those same source text, not Erasmus's Greek New Testament, but the source text, the Textus Receptus. Okay, so they're just their whole thing is just any text that isn't ones that the Catholics have touched is the right one. Right, because if the Catholics have touched it, then they've corrupted it. Even the texts that were made before the Catholics got a hold of them were corrupted because they were the ones that the Catholics eventually used. Right. To, that's like, what's the, because op- the Catholics are a conspiracy from the devil to make sure that people don't get saved and they trust in works instead of Jesus to take them to heaven. What's the opposite of a retcon? Like if you're retconning the future, I don't know, you know what I'm saying. Like they're, this is, this is so, con- okay. The, I mean, this I I guess it was like a long way to go to just say the IFB are insistent on the King James version because they don't like Catholics, uh, right? But the so that's reason, the short version of it. Okay, yes. <clears throat> I don't know. I feel like this is foundational to understanding the IFB because I spent so many hours learning about this as a fundamentalist child, and I know a lot of other people did too. Okay, well, that, I mean, that makes sense to me though. We're on the same page here, at least okay. up to this point. Okay, is it? Uh, do you want to take up the offering now? I think this is the perfect time. Let's go do that. Okay, cool. Hey, Sadie here. If this is your first time listening to the Leaving Eden podcast, make sure you go back and check out episode 57. It's a primer episode for new listeners. That episode tells my personal story and gives you all the terms and information that you'll need to know going forward. Also, check out our cult true crime series, The First Family of Fundamentalism, so that you can get the whole cult story. If you like our show, you can support us by joining our Patreon, where we have extended and uncensored episodes, as well as other bonus content available. You can also join in the discussion in our Facebook group, That group is called Eden Exodus. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your worst enemy. 
The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. Now, back to the show. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Okay, we are back from our break. Uh, now that we have covered the story of how the KJV got made and why it's different from the Vulgate or other translations and why the IFB believe it's better, I do have a question and maybe I hope you'll follow me on this. Okay. So, original reason the Bible needed to be translated into English was because it needed to be accessible to the masses, right? Right. So, the belief is that the Bible alone shows the path to salvation, and the Bible alone is sufficient to teach someone the path to salvation. So, you must be able to understand Scripture to get saved, and even if there is no one there to show you the way, you can just read about it in the Bible and get saved. And that's where the IFB take massive issue with the Catholic Church, because their perception is that the church believes that salvation comes only through the sacraments. So you must have a church and a priest to reach heaven. So the IFB view is, is as opposite as that of that as they can possibly get. Of course, that's not what the, the Catholics actually believe. Not strictly. That's, I mean, no. Okay. <clears throat> that's what the IFB says the Catholics believe. But right. uh, aside from that, um, the, the point is that you have to have a translation that's accessible to you. Right. If you're reading the King James Version, the King James Version is all in Shakespearean English. And it sure does sound pretty, but it's not very accessible. So this is where we're going to get uh, vaguely racist and extremely classist here. Two great tastes that taste great together. Uh, as always, uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I think we can all agree that Language changes over time. Of course, this is true. And modern English would be considered by language experts to be almost a different language entirely, or at least a different dialect from the English spoken in the early 17th century. So my question is, why isn't it acceptable to have an English translation into modern English. Like, why couldn't you go and take the Textus Receptus and translate that into English the way that we speak today? So a couple different reasons. Number one is, uh, hold on, let me find the Bible verse for it. So there's a couple different verses. One of them, trigger warning for scripture, is Psalm 62, 11. God hath spoken once, twice I have heard this, that power belongeth unto God. There's another one. Um, okay, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, who he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom he also made wor worlds. So the IFB interpretation of, of those verses is that once there was a perfect English translation of the Bible, it is the only one that can only ever be perfect. Because... Mm. 
if the King James Version is exactly what God would have said if God spoke the Bible into English instead of Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, and if the King James Version says thee and thou, that means that God would have said thee and thou. So, and and because every word is important mm. and crucial, and you may not change a single word that, to quote scripture, proceedeth out of the mouth of God, you can't change thee and thou to you and your, because that is changing the word of God. So once there is a perfect translation, that is the perfect translation forever. So the King James, the IFB believe, was translated at the height of the English language. They often point to Shakespeare, a contemporary of the King James translators, as proof of that, mainly because they have no clue how filthy Shakespeare was or how extremely bisexual Shakespeare was. Uh, that was very entertaining to learn about as an adult. <laughs> uh, King James, too. No, um, I was uh, re-editing the old episode about ACE schools. Um, you talked about how the IFB had you reading what the baldlerized shakespeare right? yeah yeah Baldler. how do how is it i don't know how that's spelled the the, the last name of the guy who made this like the version of shakespeare was Baldler. so how can they point to this as the height of the english language and then make changes to it and say well the, no well they're not no. changing they're not changing the bible they're changing shakespeare because it had dirty words in it like damn <laughs> in macbeth in my opinion though the English language peaked when T-Pain rhymed mansion with Wisconsin. Well, I, that's good. Great opinion. Good job. The, 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 the biblical literalist, the idea is that because... So if the King James is exactly what God would have said if he spoke the Bible into English, it is perfect and can never be changed. I'm going to give you some of the reasons that they believe that. So the belief is that the King James Bible translators were the absolute greatest congregation of scholars ever assembled. I heard a lot in church growing up about how many of the translators spoke six or seven languages. It's true that the meeting of the King James Version translators was an impressive gathering. They were impressive men, but it doesn't sit right with me how they put this group of entirely white British men on a pedestal as the greatest meeting of minds that has ever happened in human history. I feel like there is an incredibly high likelihood that there have been some other equally significant gatherings of scholars that didn't include white people at all at some point in hu human history. The important thing here is that the King James Version translators worked from the Antiochian texts. So they went directly back to the Greek and Hebrew texts or copies of them that were preserved by the church in Antioch. So why are the ones in Antioch better than the ones that are in Alexandria? Because the Alexandrian texts that became the Septuagint in Greek were corrupted by Ptolemy, the Egyptian pharaoh. I can't prove it. This just kind of seems like mm. more racism to me, because the reason that they're corrupted seems to be that, oh, it was commissioned by Ptolemy, so it can't be good. Wait, so they they like whoever was doing it in Syria. They like Syrians. They don't like Egyptians. Right. Okay. Also, though, huh. I mean, they really, really hate Egyptians. Um, I think they're holding a grudge over the whole enslaving people thing. Um, they weren't even the ones that were. We got enslaved by that, man. I know, That's but remember, different. these are the fundies who think that they're the Jews. But. Oh, is that why they also hate the Romans? Sure. Or did they? Well, the Romans but... killed Jesus. It's it's complicated. The other the other reason they hate. Alexandria, though. Alexandria was the center of intellectualism in the world at the time. 
And of course, the fundies hate people who are too educated and too intellectual, because that's who brought us higher criticism. Except for the King James Version translators, we love them because they're educated and intellectual. This makes sense, right? Yes, this is 100% (laughs) consistent in-universe. And logical. (laughs) The other part of it is, remember when we were talking about Tyndall in the first ever English translation of the Bible? We talked about how the Tyndall Bible went from Greek and Hebrew to Greek and then to Latin and then to English. The King James Version's translator started with the Greek and Hebrew and took out the Latin middleman. So we can presume there's maybe less margin for error for the same reason that you can avoid plagiarism detectors if you put something through Google Translate, like English to French to Japanese back to English. Yeah, I don't know. So to me, this feels extremely arbitrary. Like, it seems to me that they, you know how like in Star Wars, they decided the Emperor was supposed to be in Star Wars 9. And then they didn't explain at all how the emperor like came back and stuff. And then they just let like, and then they're just like, okay, now somebody else can make up the backstory for how that happened. But for this movie, we need him back right now. And we're not going to tell you how it happened. No, because I haven't seen that, but I believe you. (laughs) (laughs) So the IFB conveniently ignore a few things here. The big one for me is that, King James specifically commissioned this edition of the Bible because he didn't like that the Geneva Bible had phrases that were contrary to the divine right of kings and the ecclesiastical structure of the new Anglican church founded by his very recent predecessors. One specific example that King James specifically asked to have changed in the KJV is a note in the Geneva Bible that commended Hebrew midwives for their civil disobedience to Pharaoh when Pharaoh told them to kill all the Israelite babies. You know, the events leading up to the Passover. Yeah. So it wasn't part of the scripture, but there was a like a side note in the Geneva Bible that pointed out that this was a good thing when they disobeyed the king. In not murdering babies? Right. King James didn't like that part because he thought it would inspire British citizens to commit civil disobedience. This is... So you could just, like, if you're the king, you could just say, hey, listen, uh, do you want to change the Bible real quick for me? So, like, you could... From from what I can see, the, the change was not in the text of scripture, but it was like a footnote. But still, that is like highly sus to me. Yeah. The IFB also conveniently ignore that the Apocrypha was originally included in the KJV. So question, if you're converting to Catholicism, are you on team Vulgate now? My dude, I'm team higher criticism. The extremely shady history of how the Bible got from there to here is the least of my concerns. Okay, that's fair. So to wrap up with the King James, the moderate side of the IFB, which weirdly includes Jack Scott's former teachings, believe that the King James Version was translated from exact perfect copies of divinely trans- divinely inspired words. So the, the moderate view is that God preserved his exact word through the Textus Receptus, not through the Alexandrian texts in the Vulgate, but that God miraculously preserved his word through the Textus Receptus until it got to the King James translators. And then as they prayed to God for wisdom and knowledge, God helped them get it right. In the same way that you might pray, for God to guide the surgeon's hands if you're having a surgery, like, God, please help the surgeon do a good job. That's the moderate view. 
The extreme fundamentalists, including Stephen Anderson, believe that God actually spoke the words of the Bible again in English to the KJV translators. So, like, they wouldn't have needed texts at all because God spoke the words to them. This doctrinal position is called continuing revelation because God again revealed or again inspired the words in English. Either way, what both sides believe is that the King James Version is word for word perfect, exactly what God meant. Every word, every letter is perfectly translated into English. Of course, the original printing of the King James Version had a couple of spelling errors and other assorted typos, which the IFB again ignores and chalks up to human error. Just another fun logical loop to get into there. (laughs) Because if it had a typo, Mm -hmm. wouldn't that mean that the typo should stay because God divinely inspired the typo if he was divinely inspiring the translators? (laughs) Anyway, so it was totally okay, the IFB believe to fix the typos and drop the long F for the S when that change came about in printing and to standardize some spellings because that wasn't, quote, taking away jots and tittles from the word of God somehow. But it's not okay to update the language of the KJV because it's divinely inspired. So they believe that people should just learn to read Elizabethan English in order to be able to understand the King James Version because it's perfect. So (laughs) I mean, so they've gone full circle with that where they're I mean, it's not like they're saying, oh, the Bible is in a different language, but it's almost a different language. That's really funny. They've just well, and then that just leads right into more uh, racism and classism and pseudo intellectualism. the The fundies hate intellectualism except for when it comes to the Bible. So you you just get just a whole just a whole mess of all of those isms and in the belief that children should be taught to read up to the King James reading level. Um, you also get flat out lies. Uh, I grew up hearing that the King James Version is on a fifth grade reading level and that other contemporary versions are on an eighth or ninth grade reading level. That's just not true. No, that's truly false. Yeah, that that's just, it's just a lie. <laughs> what? And Man. so anyway, that is uh, why the King James Version it is definitely not because the use of archaic words in the King James makes it possible for modern fundamentalists to twist the meanings of verses to be whatever they want. Definitely not that. So, oh, I have an example of twisting the use of verses to mean whatever they want. Please go for it. So, TW for scripture again, uh, Romans 5, 8, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I have heard IFB died in the wool. Hiles Anderson grad preachers give at least three definitions for the word commendeth. So, I've heard that commendeth means proved showed or gave. I would point out that proved, Uh, showed, and gave are three different words with different meanings. But commendeth his love. What? God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What does commendeth mean in that verse? I mean, it could also be God commended himself for loving us. You know what I'm saying? God's like giving himself a pat on the back, you know, in the meme where Obama's putting the medal on himself. That's that's what yeah. I th- when I hear the word commend, it's like, oh, I commend you for your service. I commend you for your uh And if you if you look up the etymology of commend, it comes from a Latin word meaning uh entrust to, commit, or recommend, which are different. <laughs> 
they yeah. proved or showed or gave. Although gave would be the closest. Right. So, mm. so this archaic language, actually, now I want to check. What do I have on the shelf? I have a RSV hanging out. I don't know where my ESV is right now. I have to find it. Let's find out. What is that? Romans 5, 8. I just want to, I just want to see what my, what my RSV says. Yeah. In the, in the RSV, it is shows, but God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Anyway. Okay. Well, that, that makes sense. That's a, a, it makes more sense than commendeth. Um, (laughs) So the art, my point is that the archaic language makes that twistable. And I've heard the word, um, one more quick TW for scripture. This is a, a gender weird verse. Uh, I've heard uh, the word pertaineth as used in Deuteronomy 2.5, translated into modern English in a whole bunch of ways, some of which make sense and some of them don't. So that's that's my point on on uh, the archaic language being used to twist the meaning of the verse. So here uh, here's another question. Which version of the Bible is most consistent with the Dead Sea Scrolls? Oh, so you want to talk about modern translations. Okay. So I, I only bring them up because I've seen them in person. Uh, I've oh, actually that's seen so cool. Yeah. When did you get to see them in person? When I went on my, my birthright trip. Uh, so for, That is so cool. Yeah, For those that don't know, uh, Dead Sea Scrolls are various manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible that were found spread out in various caves around the Dead Sea. Um, and and they've been dated using carbon dating, so they know how old they are. Um, and, and they know that they were uh, made between the 3rd century BC and the 1st century AD. So, so they're roughly between 2000 and uh, uh, 2200 or 2300 years old. And they were first discovered in 1946 by a young Bedouin shepherd upon his discovery of the text in a cave. There were then subsequent discoveries of others in a uh, nearby cave, well as, uh, uh, and, th- and that happened between uh, 46 and 56. And now they're on display in a museum in Jerusalem where you can go and see them if you want to, um, which is very cool. But, they contain various portions of every single book of the Bible, uh, every single book of the Hebrew Bible, I should say. Excuse me, except for the book of Eth- uh, except for the book of Esther. So the, the manuscripts themselves, the Dead Sea Scrolls, do not form a complete copy of the Hebrew Bible. They contain probably like twenty twenty five percent of it, uh, which is not an insignificant amount. But they have been matched up with modern day Torah scrolls and have been found to, I think, be nearly identical. Right, like like incredibly close. There are a couple there are a couple of discrepancies. One of them I'm going to talk about in a minute. Oh, okay. Well that's really interesting. I'd love to hear about that. No, the the IFB so when we're talking about modern translations that used the Dead Sea Scrolls as part of their source material. We are not talking about the King James, obviously, because uh, it was written 300 years or translated 300 years before the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. The IFB hate the Dead Sea Scrolls so much, and they hate every version of the Bible that used them in any way during translation. How come? That That's like very wild to me, because this is an actual copy, like a partial copy of the, of, of the Hebrew Bible that... Jesus, like it's it's contemporary to 
what Jesus and his followers would have read, I would think that they would be jazzed about that. They would totally just be really excited to see it and to read it. So it turns out this is this is going to be one of those things that I say, and I just know how you're going to feel about it. Oh, I'm already prepared. I'm excited for this. This is going to be funny. So it turns out that the Dead Sea Scrolls have some differences from the texts that were used to translate the King James. And these are mm. extremely minor differences. So, for example, the texts that were used to translate the KJV and uh, and also other versions, other more modern versions, say that Goliath was six cubits and a span high, tall. And uh, in modern measurement, that's about nine feet tall. The Dead Sea Scrolls say four cubits and a span, which is about six foot six. So still a giant, you know, that six foot six in ancient Israel is still a very tall man. Right, because people were way shorter back then. Right. I'll never forget um, one time my dad told me that like when I got to my full adult height, my dad told me that I was probably taller than Jesus now. <laughs> and it um, blew my mind. Well, you know, the, the people being over six feet tall on a regular basis is was not a common thing until like this century. Yeah. You know, because people just, I mean, people just didn't eat as well. They didn't have as good nutrition. They weren't getting as much calcium. Yeah, I have a... I think he is my great great uncle. Anyway, I have I have a relative, a distant relative who was about 6 foot 6 in the 18 mid 1800s. Oh wow. And it was notable, it was so notable that I was finding out about his height 150 years after his <laughs> lifetime and um that's you know now I know like five guys who are 6 foot 6. You know Charlemagne the 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 king yeah. king charlemagne he was known as being just a a, a f-ing huge like a very tall man and he was apparently like 6 feet tall and people were like this is the tallest mm-hmm. guy any of us have ever seen and he's like 6'1 or 6'2 or something like that yeah. was the so yeah. anyway uh 6 foot 6 or 9 foot and some change either one would have been unusually tall at the time of <clears throat> at the time of the story of Goliath. But th- there that's one discrepancy between the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Textus Receptus. Uh, there's also a small discrepancy on how many bulls Hannah brought to sacrifice at the temple after the birth of Samuel. There's also there's a word discrepancy on the word that's translated as fear, specifically in Deuteronomy 6.8. So reading scripture again. Therefore thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways and to fear him. The word in the Dead Sea Scrolls would be better translated into English as love. So to walk in his ways and to love him. Oh, well, that changes things. So yeah, that's- and that's, that is a significant change. Um, but that's about the most significant difference between the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Textus Receptus. Well, I mean, that's that's not very big, is it? That's, I mean, that's like not some really detail. because the IFB translate fear as love anyway, or respect. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> respect is is more typically like how they they like loving respect is kind of how they uh, interpret that word fear. I mean, the four cubits versus the 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 six cubits or whatever. That's like that's not even like that. Okay, that, so that, to you detailed. and me, it does not matter, right? You, no. 
I mean, it's a story. Right. But to the IFB, if if it's not an every word Bible, it's a no word Bible. Remember? To the Mm. IFB, if it's not exact, if every word is not correct, it is not the word of God. So if it differs from the King James, which we know is the word of God, it can't be valid. So the Dead Sea Scrolls, like dinosaur bones, are planted by Satan to fool us all. So so how are they saying that it got this? Are they saying that that it's because parts of it either degraded or the centuries over the centuries or have not been found or, or, or so that it's not a historical document anymore and therefore and like they're, none of it is real or they're just saying that it's corrupted and therefore it's not scripture but it's the original how would it get corrupted it it differs from the king james so clearly it's corrupted just like the alexandrian text or the latin vulgate were corrupted so s- it's wrong and therefore it's not scripture and also any modern version that used the dead sea scrolls is not scripture because it's different from the king james i am so confused right now i feel like because the Dead Sea Scrolls are the original text, or at least like as as close as is possible to get. It's like no, it's closer it, to get possible. It, it's possible to get closer to the original text because those are the texts that God supernaturally gave the King James Version translators. Do you ever hear that? Who was it? There was some celebrity that went to a lookalike contest for themselves. Was it yeah, like I Charlie think it was Dolly Parton? I think it's Dolly Char- Parton. Oh, Dolly Parton. Okay, well, Dolly Parton goes to a, a Dolly Parton lookalike contest and comes in third place. Yeah, or, or something. <laughs> this this is how I feel about this. I'm just like that's, that's a good take. This, yeah, it, oh, it's just my well, God. we have okay. So the logic line goes like this: God promised that there would always be an inspired, preserved version of His Word on Earth. So there must be one. Uh, we have it. It's the King James Version. Uh, it ref- the King James Version <laughs> translation, due to some magic that I may not have time to get into this episode, but I will come back to, I promise. Uh, the King James Version confirms that it itself is the inspired, preserved version of God's Word on Earth. There can only be one inspired, preserved version of God's Word on Earth that is accurate to every word if they're all slightly different. Only one of them can be perfect. God promised that there would be a perfect one. Therefore, we have the perfect one, and that's the King James Bible. So if the Dead Sea Scrolls have any minor difference from the King James Bible, they cannot be the inspired word of God. So therefore, they are corrupt and satanic. This is such circular logic. It's like, I reject your reality and substitute my own. I had to just turn my brain off like a light switch and just revert to Fundy Brain to try to explain that to you. This is so. When we talked about young Earth creationism, we talked about this concept of if you can't believe what God says about creation, how do you believe anything else the Bible says? If you can't believe in a literal six day creation from nothing, you don't truly believe the Bible at all. So this is a related concept. If you If you don't believe in every word of the Bible, then you don't believe in the Bible at all. Because if you don't believe that there is a one singular perfect translation, then you don't believe that we have the perfect word of God on earth in the present day. Because the very existence of the Dead Sea Scrolls pretty much completely debunks King James only-ism. It's it's just like like a dagger. 
you know, unless unless you come out with with some really weird uh, 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 circular logic around that. Are 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 they saying that like because I, I and I don't know how you would debunk Dead Sea Scrolls. Like I I just don't know how that would be possible to be debunked. Are they saying that it's that it was faked? Are they say because they're saying it's corrupted? How how are they saying that happened? So the the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, came from an ancient religious sect of Judaism that were kind of off doing their own thing, right? They I'm not were, sure. This is this is what I was reading when I when I read about the Dead Sea Scrolls. They recently or, or when you were in fundamentalism? No, recently. Like when I was oh, researching okay, okay. this episode. There there was a a religious sect that were living in community on the shores of the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, not all of them are scripture. Some of them are hymns from this group. Some of them are written prayers from this group. Some of them are just group rules, group like group governance for this religious group that was all living in community. So what the IFB might say, one, one of the things that they might come up with is that this group was a cult. And when they copied scriptures, they purposely change things to support their ideas of scripture. And of course, that makes it not scripture, even for more logical people than the IFB. Some, uh, so that's, that's one view that the fundies have floated. Another view is just that the Dead Sea Scrolls were copied from the original manuscripts, but people made mistakes and therefore they're not inspired. This seems like pure projection on the part of the IFB. That's 100% what the IFB did, though. Right. Like, it's, <laughs> it's literally what they did. And they're saying, no, they're the ones that did it. No, um, but to me, this seems extremely unlikely, and I'll tell you why. Please do. So earlier you spoke about the idea um, um, that the fundies have, um, that it is not a complete Bible. If it, if it is not a complete Bible, then it's not the complete word of God. And that isn't just a fundy idea. One of the reasons why... Torah scrolls are such a valuable and and sacred object is is for a reason that's similar to this belief. The the belief is that it only becomes Torah when the final pen stroke is made. Additionally, it must be copied by hand and it must be 100% word for word accurate. Uh, and, and if you make a mistake, then the whole thing is worthless and you have to start from scratch. This is Jewish law. So Jew, Jew, it's very like regimented on, on, on copying this because the, the, the Torah is, is such like a, a central piece. They do not f around with anything. So I'm not saying that there is a 0% chance that it's never been, you know, miscopied over the centuries between when it was spoken and when the Dead Sea Scrolls were written down, were, were, were copied down. But even back in those years, this document would have been a treasured possession. If you had a full and complete copy, it would have meant that you were devoted to the tradition and you were devoted to knowing the tradition and knowing this rule that it had to be hand copied. So if you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, these weren't things that were just like thrown together. These they weren't sloppy. They were it's it's a meticulously written document. It's pretty much the only thing that's changed between like the Dead Sea Scrolls and like Torah that you would find in a synagogue today is the handwriting. 
Right, because the Dead Sea Scrolls were written um, in different styles of handwriting, and that's how we know there were multiple people that were copying it. But what I was talking about earlier with the Every Word Bible thing, this is a concept actually that the IFB appropriates from Judaism. Do you see how they're appropriating yeah. like the concept of how Torah scrolls are written? Yeah, but the thing is, like, if you write it out in English, then it's not a, a sacred object. Right. Like, I, I, I know that the IFB, you know, it, that you were telling me about how, you know, a Bible, you would, ne you never put a Bible on the ground. You never put anything on top of a Bible. Mm -hmm. Like I have, um, like, like a copy of the, uh, 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 like a translated copy into English. And that's not a, a, a sacred object to me. That's just a book. That's just a yeah. reference to me. It's not the right. same thing as having like a scroll. Right. That's so the IFB has done a more faithful rendition of this concept than they do other things that they've appropriated from Judaism. I'll give them that. <laughs> <laughs> but they're still not doing a great job appropriating somebody else's religion. Uh, they're doing a better job than they have in the past. So I, But I was hearing about the process of making Torah scrolls growing up. Because this was part of the proof for how the King James Bible got to where it got to us. As I was saying earlier, they ignore this appropriation when it comes to typesetting mistakes. I've had a Bible. I've owned a really? Bible. Yeah, I've owned a Bible at some point in my life where uh, there was a funny spelling. I think a word was misspelled or um, two letters were switched or it was either that or just a missing letter in a word. Like the print plate was off. I guess it isn't the whole incomplete word of God. Nobody was telling me that it wasn't a real Bible. Nobody was telling me that if I witnessed to somebody and they got saved from that Bible, that they were not really saved, uh, which is a belief that certain IFB have, by the way. They believe what? that, yes, yes, it is. This is why I say it is Bible oh worship. God, because this is... someone that I knew growing up, an adult established woman in the church who, uh, I don't want to identify her too much, but she was uh, grown, established, known for being extremely spiritual, ex extremely religious. She realized like in her late 30s that when she got saved, the person witnessing to her did not use the King James. And she was worried that she wasn't really saved because of that. So she went back and got re-saved with somebody using the King James Version. Oh, my God. This is Bible worship. Her faith was never in the saving power of Jesus' death on the cross. Her faith was in a Bible version. Man. And that's oh my, heresy. That's, that is... <laughs> yeah. But, like, I, but I've had a King James Version where letters were incorrect, and nobody was telling me it wasn't a real Bible. No one was telling me it was okay to put it on the ground to put a cup of coffee on top of it. Nobody was telling me if people got saved while I was using that Bible that they weren't really saved. Because this idea of the King James being the perfect translation is a straw man. <laughs> anyway, mm -hmm. <laughs> the thing is that many, if not most, modern translations that came out after the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls use the Dead Sea Scrolls as part of their source material or reference material, which in the real world is a very logical thing to do because the Dead Sea Scrolls are the absolute closest thing to the original manuscripts that we have because they are the oldest copy of scripture that we have. But these scrolls also deviate from the copy of Antioch and they're also different from the Septuagint, right? Right. 
Right. So in the eyes of the IFB, because the Dead Sea Scrolls deviate from the text that were used to translate the King James, they're invalid. So any modern translation that uses the Septuagint or the Dead Sea Scrolls or Horton Westcott or any of those things is invalid because it comes from corrupted, non-inspired source materials. Also, calling back to our science episodes, the IFB don't believe in carbon dating either. So when scholars say that the Dead Sea Scrolls came from around like, like what what did you say it was? 300 BC to 100 AD? Uh, yeah. It's in yeah, one yeah, ear and out the other because they don't believe in carbon dating. So that doesn't matter to them. They think, oh, somebody uh, last year could have just like faked that and then put it in the jar and then left right. somebody to find I, it. Okay. Yeah, I've also heard that they were fake. So I mentioned Horton Westcott. I have to tell you what that is. There have been many new translations of the Greek New Testament throughout the years. One of the most prominent was done in the 1800s by two translators named Hort and Westcott. That Greek New Testament is used as source material or reference material by almost every modern translation. Because Hort and Westcott held personal liberal views, the fundies reject their translation fully as corrupted uh, and have retconned um, reasons why their source material was invalid to further support their rejection of Horton Westcott, and they won't have anything to do with it or any translation that uses or references it, which is almost every modern translation. Uh, what? Okay. So... So so how does this affect the 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 IFB interpretations um of these rules versus the denominations that use other translations or is it just a way for IFB to kind of continue their doctrine of separation against people who don't use their preferred bible version There are some specific differences between the King James and other modern translations that get talked about a lot in the IFB world there are dozens, so I don't want to weigh you down with all of them. A lot of them are really minor, but I thought I would pull a, full, a few examples for you, and then we can see what you think about the examples that I pulled out. Okay, hit it. So one of the major points of contention is that the IFB believes that many modern translations mistranslate verses relating to the deity of Jesus. Okay, well, I mean, that sounds doctrinally very significant, right? It is, Yeah. So in one paper I linked in the sources, there are eight different places in the New Testament where Jesus could have been referred to as God. Like based on the Greek text, there are eight places that the translators had to choose to refer to Jesus as God specifically. The King James chooses to refer to Jesus as God in four of those places and does not choose, based on the Greek text, to refer to him as God in four other places out of those eight possible places. Right, because Jesus doesn't really come out and say, I am God, does he? He he does claim to be the Son of God and the Messiah, and, and he does that in very roundabout ways, in, in hints and subtle language, kind of speaking in riddles, but he does not ever come out and say, I am God. The mainstream Christian belief, of course, is that Jesus was, in the words of the Catholic Church, consubstantial with the Father. In the New Liturgy, that is written as one in being with the Father, i.e. two expressions of the same person, two parts of the Trinity that make up the one God. 
But okay, so but it's kind of confusing to me that Jesus wouldn't be coming out and saying I am God if he were God because I mean if, if, if at least when I read through the Hebrew Bible, almost every time God shows up, he says I am God or he says I am the Lord, do this thing. Don't do this thing. I am the like he just it, it's like right, a catchphrase. It's, it's all over. Like if he's if there's a commandment that he really 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 wants you to follow, he will say, "I am the Lord." After yes. giving that commandment, don't do this thing. I am God. <laughs> yeah, like that. That happens a lot through the Old Testament. The, so yes, it is unusual that Jesus is not showing up saying, "I am God." There are a lot of reasons for that. I am not going to try to get into them in this episode because we're already going so long. In the King James Version, for example, I'm going to share with you some of the examples of this translation difference. In the King James Version, Acts 20, 28 reads, quote, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. The RSV translates that verse as, quote, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to take care for the church of God, which he obtained with the blood of his own son. So, so what's he saying? He's saying, take care of God. I mean, take care of the church. Right. But the King James Version says, the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. It's saying Jesus's blood was God's blood because they are the same person. The RSV says to care for the church of God, which he obtained with the blood of his own son. So the RSV says Jesus is God's son. The King James says Jesus equals God. The Revised Standard Version said Jesus equals Son of God. So it seems like a really subtle difference, but the IFB believes that this is heresy because one of their main points is the Godhood of Jesus. Another example would be Titus 2.13. In the King James Version, it reads, quote, Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. So in Titus 2.13, the King James says that the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ are two beings whom we are waiting for. We are waiting for the glorious appearing of the great God, and we are also waiting for the glorious appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. In the ESV, the English Standard Version, Titus 2.13 reads, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. It, the ESV says, Jesus is the great God and Savior, and it is his appearing that we are waiting for. But it seems like the KJV is uh, like more ambiguous than the RSV version, because the, it seems like the RSV is saying Jesus is God, right? So in one place, the King James is saying Jesus is God, and the RSV is saying Jesus is the Son of God. In the other example, the King James is saying God and Jesus are coming for us. And the English Standard Version the ESV is saying, uh, Jesus is God and he is coming for us. The, the point is, the King James Version is correct. So if someone else says something different, they are wrong. That's that's what mm. it is. Okay. Because the, 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 the starting point is the King James Version is right. Okay. And I guess these are all so subtle that if I were looking at these, I wouldn't notice any difference between them. But you're reading them and you're just like, oh, these are like uh, uh, very significant. Right. Okay. 
So there's also some controversy I want to turn to verses pertaining to salvation, because that's obviously, if you're in a religion where you believe that the two choices are go to heaven and live forever with God or go and burn in hell, figuring out how to be the person who gets to live forever with God is pretty important. So in uh, I'm going to read Romans 10, 9 in King James Version. Sorry for another Romans Road verse, y'all. Uh, the King James Version reads, quote, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. In the NIV, Romans 10, 9 reads, quote, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you, sh- you will be saved. The IFB perspective here, of course, is that the NIV promotes lordship salvation, the concept that you have to make Jesus Lord of your life, in other words, quit sinning in, a, in order to get saved. The IFB belief being, of course, that all you have to do is believe and you can deal with putting Jesus in charge of your life and quitting sinning later. For the life of me, I cannot tell the difference between those two. I like I looking at those on the screen right now, I can't. The, the, the implications of those things from a theological perspective are just they they huh, I would have not been able to get that. Okay, so let me see Let me see if I can help, because I wouldn't expect you to see the difference, but would you have a problem with saying, uh, just as you know, as yourself, as the person that you are, would it? Would you have a problem with saying, like, oh, yeah, Jesus is some dude? Personally, if, if I said Jesus was some dude, no, I wouldn't, ha- I wouldn't have a problem but with that. Would you, okay, but would you feel comfortable saying, Jesus is the Lord. No, I wouldn't be comfortable like saying That's like the proclaiming that meaning. I That's the difference. Because the IFB view inspired by the King James is that believing on Jesus is like if you believing on Jesus's death, burial and resurrection is enough to get you to heaven and you don't have to say that he is lord of your life. The 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 <sighs> the KJVO people think that the NIV people are saying that you have to put Jesus in charge of your life to go to heaven. But don't, isn't there a whole thing that you have to accept and put Jesus in charge of your life and then you go to heaven and accept that he died for you? And Those are two different things. Accepting that he died for you and asking him to take you to heaven is one thing. And then making him in charge of your life is another thing. Wait, so you can ask, say... I, hey, Jesus, will you take me to heaven? And Jesus says, okay, sure. And then you can go off and just be like, hey, fuck everybody. I'm just going to do my own thing and at the detriment of all of society and I and 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 talk shit about Jesus and and be the worst kind of person ever and you'll still get to go to heaven because yes. you asked Jesus to take you to heaven. If you really meant it when you asked him to take you to heaven, then yes. You know what this is like? You know, you know, in Team America World Police, when they they say we are, dicks, but we know that we're, dicks. You, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like you can be that guy, and and just be unapologetically an asshole, but because you you unapologetically or because you honestly asked Jesus to take you to heaven. Yeah. Uh, so, so quick trigger warning for salvation manipulation stuff. Um, then we get into this whole argument of, yeah, but if you were really saved, the Holy Spirit would make would work in your heart and make it hard for you to do those things. It would make it hard for you to be a dick to other people. And then people just go in circles and argue about that for hours. So we're going to move on. Okay. 
my God. So the, the bottom line is that King James supports the IFB view of salvation. There's also some discrepancy where the King James says hell uh, in Psalms 9, 17. The NIV says the realm of the dead. Oh, like the bikers were saying in the burning hell. Exactly. Uh, personally, I think the realm of the dead is more uh, accurate to what King David probably would have written. Anyway, I could drag up examples for literal hours of these theological differences. I think what we have should be illustrative enough. Outside of these theological differences that are not a big deal to everybody, but a legitimate big deal to some people, another thing is that the King James-only people have a really big hissy fit about gendered language in scripture. Because scripture is an ancient text, there's a lot of gendered language, such as using man to mean human being or person and using mankind, where we would now use humankind or the human race. The NIV, which is a modern translation with enduring popularity, changed these gendered words that were clearly meant to be used in a non-gendered sense to non-gendered or inclusive words. Again, they're not changing any specific Bible character's pronouns, certainly not changing pronouns relating to God, only changing when it was absolutely unequivocally meant to be inclusive. So in instances where the King James says brethren, the NIV changes that to brothers and sisters, which is 100%. I'm going to (sighs) yell. I I have to take a deep breath. Sadie can't yell because she had long COVID and... Uh, I'm I'm still sick. Yeah. So where the Uh, King James says brethren, the NIV changes it to brothers and sisters. What do you want to yell? Will you let... I'll yell for you if you want. Yeah. What I was going to yell is this is 100% in line with the original meaning of the text and it is clearly correct. Okay, well, I can yell. Do you want me to yell that? No, that's okay. Okay, we'll, get, well okay. If, you, if you need something yelled, just let me know and I'll do okay. it. Because- <laughs> so so um, for another example, in Psalm, 30, Psalm 133, verse 1, the King James reads, reading scripture again, sorry, all y'all. The King James reads, quote, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Oh, I know the, that one. Yeah, we have a song. The Fundies have a song about it. Um, oh, the Jews have a song. The Jews have a song about it. It is like oh, yours is probably better. We should send each other YouTube links. Yeah, yeah. Keep going. So in the King in the King James, it's behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. In the NIV, it reads, "Quote how good and how pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity." So brethren has just been switched out for people because clearly. That verse is not just referring to male people who get along well, brethren, brothers. Uh, Clearly, that verse is referring to human people, regardless of their genders, who get along well together. it It is absolutely clear. There is no way that that is only meant to mean male people. This, you know, this gives me vibes. You know how if you say some on Twitter, completely unrelated to gender or anything, and there will be some that responds to your tweet with you have pronouns in your bio you know what i'm saying yeah like there's like a way to discredit you that that's the vibes that i'm getting from this yeah it's like the oh no i know what words i like when people use about me how terrible i know what gender i am you needed the kindergarten teacher to tell you i'm just like off that no that's that's like that's very much what this controversy this gender neutral controversy is about because 
I swear the the NIV <clears throat> only you only changed things when it is clearly meant to be people of all genders and not just men. This so this is it's just some reactionary bull. Yep. Got it. Okay. Um, so out of curiosity, where do these modern if they're not able to use the Dead Sea Scrolls? Um, I guess they're they'd only be able to use like. 20% of whatever. Yeah, there's not the enough Dead Sea Scroll to completely base a translation off of it. So where are they getting their uh, their New Testament from? So that depends on the translation. I thought I would look up a couple uh, and just let you know straight from the source. I grabbed the statement from the ESV, the English Standard Version. It's a very new but incredibly popular translation that I have used in the past, and I uh, don't use it anymore because I found out that it was specifically translated to promote complementarianism, uh, which is a huge bummer because I really like the way it reads. Anyway, <laughs> this is the statement on where the text for the ESV came from, straight from the ESV website. Uh, the ESV is based, quote, the, e the ESV is based on the Masoretic text of the Hebrew Bible as found in the Biblica Hebraica Stuttgart Sensia, 5th edition 1997, and on the Greek text in the 2014 editions of the Greek New Testament, 5th corrected edition, published by the United Bible Societies, UBS, and Novum Testament Testamentum Grace Grace Grace? 28th edition, 2012, edited by Nestle and Aland. The currently renewed respect among the Old Testament scholars for the Masoretic text is reflected in the ESV's attempt, wherever possible, to translate difficult Hebrew passages as they stand in the Masoretic text, rather than resorting to emendations or finding an alternative reading in the ancient versions. In exceptional difficult cases, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Septuagint, the Samaritan Pentateuch, the Syriac Peshitta, the Latin Vulgate, and other sources were consulted to shed possible light on the text or, if necessary, to support a divergence from the Masoretic texts. Similarly, in a few difficult cases, cases in the New Testament, the ESV has followed a Greek text different from the text given preference in the UBS Nestle Land 28th edition. Whew. Okay. So all of that means, let me translate, the ESV used the Masoretic text in Hebrew to go directly from Hebrew to English. The Masoretic text, that's your version. <laughs> that's the Jewish version. And is the same text that was used to translate the King James. So for the Old Testament, the source material is fundy approved, although the translation is not. If you're asking why a translation that came from approved source material could possibly not be fundy approved, it's because of a Bible verse that says that God gave his word once and for all, and the IFB interpretation of that verse is, there will only be one perfect translation into English for all time, and since the KJV already holds that spot, sorry ESV, we don't need you. So... That's the, the answer for the ESV Old Testament. However, the ESV translators used the Greek New Testament published by United Bible Societies as the primary text for the New Testament. I wanted to know where the UBS Greek New Testament came from, so I looked it up. The UBS Greek New Testament is based on the Nestle Aland New Testament, so I had to look that one up to see where that one came from. The Nestle Aland New Testament is based on Hort and Westcott. And as we've mentioned, Hort and Westcott used inferior text and are evil, dun, dun, according dun. to the IFB. <laughs> so that's a big nope from the fundies. The ESV also admits to using the Latin Vulgate for reference. So it is, it is just right out by fundy standards. No way. 
And the fact that they used these evil texts for the New Testament also cast doubt on their translation of the Old Testament. The fundies will also tell you, oh, there are there are homosexuals on the translating committee, uh, which in some cases is true. For some modern translations, that's true. Uh, but of course, in the IFB sense, that also invalidates the translation. Yeah, but that also tra- invalidates the King James Version if you can't have homosexuals <laughs> on their translating committee. Well, King James didn't actually translate anything. He just commissioned it. Yeah, but his name's on the front of it. His name's on the front of it. <laughs> well, if you go to so the, the website, the incredibly fundy website that I posted in our Facebook group a few weeks back, uh, if you and is referenced all over the show notes for this episode, if you go back and look at that website, they have a lot of web pages dedicated to trying to prove that King James was totally straight. <laughs> so they also just like don't believe that. <laughs> look, we found we we opened up his tomb. We found copies of Hustler. It's it's a hundred percent. No, because that would make him a pornographer. So then they couldn't trust him either. Yeah, but you, King James was of- just like a regular straight guy. Yeah, but but like uh, 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 all the fundy men who uh, get uh, uh, who sin with their pornography addiction, quote unquote pornography addiction, they're like, I, 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 I don't know where I'm going with this. Don't stop uh, trying to understand it. You're gonna hurt yourself. <laughs> so. So the so that's the answer on the source text of the ESV. Uh, I checked on the NIV as well. They cite the same source text as the ESV. They note in the preface of the NIV that they consulted the Dead Sea Scrolls and occasionally gave them preference over the Masoretic text. It, there, so there are there are passages in the Masoretic text that are just hard to translate into English. The quote from the NIV is. Uh, on occasions where, quote, the Masoretic text seemed doubtful and where accepted principles of textual criticism showed that one or more of these textual witnesses appeared to provide the correct reading. So they compared original texts to each other and to logic to try to determine which one would be correct to translate from into English. So they did a higher criticism and that's like triple IFB unapproved. So aside from the Catholics using the Latin Vulgate and and certain branches of fundamentalism using like King James, are there any other branches of Christianity that like insist on using a certain translation or not using a certain translation is a deal breaker for them? Not like this, not that I know of. Even in Catholicism, they don't care what translation you show up in church with. They're just going to use their preferred translation for official materials like church bulletin printouts and church readings. There's no rule that says you can't show up with a King James or anything else to church. N- nobody checks and nobody cares. So if I I go into the Presbyterian church in like my neighborhood now, there's one uh, not too far from me. They could be using ESV or RSV or NIV or, or something else entirely. So let's make this an example that I'm more familiar with, okay? If you walked into any Southern Baptist church, hypothetically, the pastor might be using the New King James Version. A lot of people in the pews would have ESVs. Some of the old people 
are still using the King James because that's what they're used to. That's what they've used their whole life. Maybe the music director really likes the NASB and the music director does the church program. So the church programs are written with NASB. Uh, the church as a whole just wouldn't have a specific translation that they use. There would be a range of translations in the room at any given time. And the pastor in his sermon, he might even reference more than one translation. So he might read a verse out of his New King James and then say, also, I looked at this verse for more context. The ESV translates it this way. The RSV says this other thing. But the message that I get from these translations is whatever. Okay, that that's that makes sense, though. <clears throat> That, huh. I, I guess I just assumed that what Bible translation to use would be the type of thing that like the deacon board or the congregation would vote on, like if they wanted to change their name or if they wanted to hire a new pastor. No. Um, many denominations have a preferred version uh, that they would use for all official communication and the readings and the printouts and everything just to standardize the wording. But nobody that I'm aware of has this complete devotion to just one translation the specifically the that's only the people who are King James only. And King James onlyism does go outside of the IFB proper, but people who insist on only one translation being correct, it's only King James people. Does am I making sense? Yes. Okay. okay. So if I'm if say I'm some Christian and I'm trying to pick a church and I go on the church website and the church website says this church uses the King James version only. Um, that's, that's a red flag. Always. Yeah. Always. Okay. I, I guess I'm just not used to this because I'm used to not even having to worry about it because we've got like the original text in the original language. And, we don't and the text lives worry. at the, and the text lives at the temple. So you don't take your translation of the JPS like with you when you go to temple. No. JPS, that's right, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jewish yeah, Publication goodness. Society. Got it off the yeah, top of my head. Uh, yeah. But you don't take, like, I've seen your translation uh, because it was, like, laying around on the table when I went to your house one time. Yeah, it's 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 a, a bit dog-eared. Uh, yeah. But you don't, like, <laughs> you don't take that to church with you. Sorry, you don't take that to temple with you when you go. No. Because no. why would you? Because there's a Torah scroll there. No, like, if I'm going to services... Like, like if I if I'm going to services, uh, it's probably for a holiday. And if I'm going for a holiday, then they'll have a book with uh, like like you've seen you, you went to Rosh Hashanah with me and yeah. Yom Kippur with me over a year ago, um, and you saw they had the book for the holiday, and they're like, go to page this in this book, and it'll have the 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 verses that you need to 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 see. You'll it'll have the Torah portion that you need for this section. And right. And it'll rough. have it written in Hebrew, written in Hebrew, transliterated with English letters, and then written in English. Yes. Which is very handy. Yeah. Um, and, and that's kind of, and that's, so, I guess that's how we do it. Um, <laughs> I don't know. This, this whole thing is just very, it's, it's fascinating to me. It's just a, a very interesting topic. Out of curiosity, what uh, a Bible translation does Hillsong use or do they not care? I had to look up their website. Uh, but here's what it said. A number of different translations are used, including NIV, NLT, and NIRV. So NIV is New International Version. NLT is New Living Translation. I had to look up what NIRV is. It's the New International Reader's Version. Basically, they, they don't really care. Um, oh, okay. 
I'm telling you, if, if someone is not upfront telling you this version is the only accurate translation and all the others are heresy, that mo- 99.9% of the time, that means that they, they don't really care. And the only people who are ever going to tell you this version is the only correct version are the KJVOs. I mean, the Jews might tell you that they have the only correct version, but that's because... Yeah, the only Christians who are going to tell you that they have the only correct uh, version are the KJVOs. Yeah, but the, and that's not even a translation. That's why. Um, no, uh, that, I guess it wouldn't really mesh with Hillsong's hip and modern aesthetic if they were uh, using a 400-year-old Bible translation. <laughs> no, it wouldn't. No. And, and the thing is, if you are not using the King James then you don't really have a leg to stand on saying that any other version is the only correct version. Plenty of people will have their opinions on, I think this one is the best and here's why. When I was an ESV user, I really felt like ESV is the best because the group of translators that got together to do the ESV, it was an amazing group of scholars, which is why I was so bummed out to find out that they were influence to specifically promote complementarianism on purpose. And that felt like such a big betrayal to me. Was it all men? Uh, I don't know. See, that's the thing is that you got to have a Bible. You got to have some, some women on the, 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 the the board of the people who are doing that translation, man. That's how you, that's what, that's what leaves me right now without, I don't have one translation that I use right now. I own uh, King James, Catholic edition revised standard version and an ESV, although I don't know where my ESV is right now. But I use those three and then I use the NIV online and a couple other versions online. And I will often look up a verse in like six different translations because I am just like, I'm not in a place to commit to one version right now. Interesting. Okay. That that makes sense to me though. That's a that's really I mean, well, I, this is this is I am I know in my heart that this is eventually going to lead to an attempt to learn Greek. <laughs> <laughs> like my dad read and wrote and uh, wrote and read Koine biblical Greek and a little bit of Latin and a little bit of Hebrew. I I just I know in my heart that I will go down that road one day. Um, <laughs> maybe when I no longer have a toddler. <laughs> so we're about to wrap this one up. I am aware that I did not even touch all of the weird Bible code, numerology, purified seven times stuff. I'm aware. Please don't come for me on Twitter. Please be nice. I am going to do a follow-up episode next year. We will talk about all of that. I know it's very interesting. I just did not have the time in this episode. I already had to cut out so many of my examples. And it was still over two hours. <laughs> yeah. Um, please do not come for me for not doing the Bible code and the numerology. I would love to end this episode with the most interesting new fact that I learned while researching this. This is something that completely destroys the IFB's entire premise for everything. Please this was so me. entertaining to find out. So I told you how the IFB rejects the Septuagint in any translations that are descended from it. Yes. In Matthew 4.4 and Luke 4.4, two tellings of the same incident, Jesus quotes scripture. The verse that he quotes is extremely familiar. Man shall not live by bread alone, but, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. This quote is recorded identically by both Matthew and Luke, which is not always the case when we're talking about the gospel. So that's neat. 
that they recorded him saying it exactly the same way. And that makes you think that the authors of each Matthew and Luke uh, thought that this was an important quote to get word for word. Like the Gettysburg Address, you know, we have that word for word. And this felt important enough to them to get it exactly word for word. It's a neat coincidence that it appears in both Matthew 4.4 and Luke 4.4, which is part of the weird Bible code that we will get into at some point, because this verse is about scripture. The verse that he is quoting is in Deuteronomy 8.3. The King James, okay, I'll tell you one numerology thing. 4 plus 4 for Matthew 4.4 plus 4 plus 4 for Luke 4, 4 equals 16, and 8 plus 3 for Deuteronomy 8, 3 equals 11. You put those together, you get 16, 11, the year that the King James was published. Boom, gotcha. Numerological proof for the King James. Yeah, but if you add those together, then it's 27. 27. What's 27? Uh, 27 is uh, 9 times 3. It's, it's 3 cubed, the Trinity. Because it's three times, because it's, it's three times three times three. Yeah. So, three so the Trinity times the Trinity. Right. Oh my no, God. So, here's the thing, though. Uh, the IFB uh, is so wrong about this verse. In the King James, the Jesus quotes, "Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God." In Deuteronomy, the King James says. Man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. So did Jesus quote it wrong? Jesus wasn't quoting. Jesus can't quote it wrong because I thought Jesus was God. How could he misquote himself? He was quoting the Septuagint. The Greek recorded in Luke and Matthew is identical to the Greek in the Septuagint, which differs from that verse, Deuteronomy 8, 3, in the Textus Receptus, which was used to translate the King James. Wow. So Jesus is basically telling you which one That the Septuagint is the word of God, because that is what he quoted. Jesus could have quoted the King James, because in universe, he would have known what the King James would one day say, and he could have chosen to quote the King James to validate the King James, but he did not. Jesus quoted the Septuagint, putting his in-universe divine stamp of approval on a translation that the fundies do not accept. Wow, that is that is fascinating. Do you ever do you ever like realize how truly wild it is that you have all this information in your brain? Yeah, it feels like stacks of books in my brain. It's truly fascinating. I get I get like a very physical sensation when I'm doing this kind of research. I feel like I'm physically taking books off the shelves of my brain and putting them back on and shuffling papers and it's fun wow i'm i mean i'm i'm fascinated by this topic this is really interesting but it really does give me a a a, a lot of insight into what you were raised up believing in what and and the the fundy worldview and the fundy view of of all of this uh bible translation stuff well for those who know who peter ruckman is i have recently come into the possession of uh about a dozen peter ruckman books so you, you, if you know who Peter Ruckman is, you will know that we will shortly be getting into the numerology of the King James. I'm really excited. Sometime for early this. next year. Yeah. So uh, I guess we're going to have to wrap this episode up. Tune in next week for our last episode of 2023. You hear that, guys? Last episode of 2023. Uh, uh, 
do you want me to introduce the topic for, oh, for next please week? Please do. Please do. So we're, we decided we're going to do a fun one um, for 23. We are watching the movie The Hebrew Hammer. Uh, so so if you haven't seen it, it's very funny. It's worth a watch. I think you can stream it for free on uh, if you so just- I watched it on Amazon Prime. It let me watch it for free with ads from Freebie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can watch it for free with ads. It's very funny. Um, if you haven't seen it, it's it's really it's it's a holiday movie. It's um not necessarily appropriate for children. Yeah, this, but is, this is not a kids movie. Not a kids movie. Um, unless you have kids who are young enough that they don't understand uh, 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 cir- uh, circumcision jokes. Uh, uh, and- there's some <laughs> language that you probably don't want your kids picking up. Yeah, um, it's it's a good holiday movie. It's it's irreverent, but it's funny. Um, I would put it on the level of like a Trailer Park Boys Christmas. Is Which it- I just watched last night uh, because the night before I watched Heber Hammer. Uh, uh, I was going to say, if you've seen like... Um, any classic black exploitation movies uh if you liked that or if you liked bad santa you will like this movie and if you like jewish jokes and and uh and and things like that then it'll be really good uh i this is like it's a holiday tradition for me to watch hebrew hammer it's one of my favorite movies ever and i hope that you guys will join us in uh in, in watching it and then next week we're going to to uh just do a review of that movie. And then we're just going to talk about uh, just what's been going on with us, what's going on with the show in the future and what we're excited for. And that's going to be really fun. Yeah. And then we'll take our traditional holiday week off. And when we come back next year, first episode of 2023, we're coming back with a very well-known cult that we have never covered on this show. But people have asked us to. But people have asked us to cover. So stay tuned for what that is. I'm extremely excited. I'm extremely excited too. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. If you want to uh, support the show, you can join our Patreon for a very, 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 very extended version of today's episode. You can join our subreddit uh, and our Facebook group, both of which are called Eden Exodus. Uh, hope that you guys have have fun in those groups. Great place for discussion. We've had a lot of people joining those groups lately and a lot of great discussion going on in them. Um, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at leaving... Facebook and Instagram is Leaving Eden Podcast. Twitter is at Leaving Eden Pod. Sadie, take us away. Yeah, you can follow me on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music, on Twitter at Hell Yeah Sadie, and on TikTok at Sadie Carpenter One. And all of my socials are uh, at G A V R I E L H A C O H E N. Thank you guys so much for tuning in, and we'll see you guys uh, next week. Bye bye. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.